Welcome in everyone. You're going to hear a little bit of nightly news for January 17th, Monday. How's everybody doing? storm pounding the east coast the powerful blast of snow ice rain and wind 11 states seeing snowfall in double digits thousands of flights canceled dangerous conditions in the south causing hundreds of crashes and at least two deaths tornadoes in florida destroying dozens of homes also tonight escaping the texas synagogue standoff the rabbi describing throwing a chair at the gunman so he and two other hostages could run away and the terror investigation new reporting on how the gunman was finally taken down. New hope in the COVID crisis is Omicron peaking in the early hotspots. What they're seeing, but hospitals still in crisis mode and the Biden administration preparing to roll out free tests. The urgent warning just days before major carriers throw the switch on 5G wireless. White airline CEOs are warning 5G will cause catastrophic flight disruptions. On this Martin Luther King Jr. Day, his family leading a march on Washington, their call to action on voting rights. The race to save the manatees, our broadcast exclusive, as four young manatees from SeaWorld get a new home. This is NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. Good evening. We've been talking about this weather system since we last saw you on Friday, and tonight it is still with us. Winter weather alerts remain in effect across northern New England and the Great Lakes after the storm barreled across and up the country as a major snowmaker. Tens of thousands in its path are still without power tonight. The storm leaving double-digit snow amounts in at least 11 states. 27 inches recorded in Ashtabula, Ohio. 22 in upstate New York. Des Moines, Iowa, more than 14 inches, its biggest snowstorm in more than a decade. Thousands of flights canceled over the weekend as snow, high winds, and flooding took a toll from the Carolinas into the Northeast. And now more brutal cold is on the way. Emily Ikeda has the latest. Chaos on the coast as a fierce winter storm brings a barrage of snow, freezing rain, and high-powered winds this Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Super windy, a lot of stuff flying out everywhere. Tonight, tens of thousands are in the dark as residents dig out of double-digit totals in at least 11 states, a staggering 22 inches in upstate New York and 14 in Des Moines, the city's worst snowstorm in more than a decade. In Pittsburgh, even first responders struggling to get around. Is this the most snow you've seen this season? Yes, yes. Walk My over. car is still under snow. Yeah. <laughs> Flakes falling at a fast clip, up to five inches an hour, making for treacherous conditions on the roads. In North Carolina, this tractor trailer sliding off a bridge. This is a major recovery. When you've got uh, trucks hanging over the highway and you got your guys working down below, you just got to make sure that when you're when you're doing that type of recovery you've got it properly secured and at least two people died after a crash on i-95 we just have to take it easy it's obviously more slick than it usually <laughs> winds packing a punch up to 70 mile an hour gusts in cities like new york and boston powering monstrous waves in massachusetts and flooding coastal communities it's amazing you know that it's breached this point 
The days-long winter wallop impacting the majority of states, from Maine to Florida, where cleanup crews face a mangled mess after five reported tornadoes tore through dozens of homes. We made it inside, and 10 seconds later, it hit. And tonight, the travel nightmare persists. More than 1,500 flights canceled in the U.S. today after 3,000 were grounded Sunday. It has been crazy, really bad. A winter weather beatdown that forecasters warn won't be this season's last. Yeah! Emily, dare I ask, how do conditions look for the rest of the week? Lester, temperatures will plummet up and down the East Coast with freeze alerts in parts of Florida and Georgia. That leaves the risk for roadway conditions to worsen overnight. Lester. Emily Aketa, thank you. Dramatic new details tonight about that hostage standoff this weekend at a synagogue near Dallas and how the rabbi and two others were able to escape from the gunman. Morgan Chesky is there tonight. Tonight, from a Texas synagogue to a town in England, the investigation into Saturday's hostage crisis now international. Authorities ID'd the suspect as Malik Faisal Akram, a 44-year-old British citizen, who the FBI says acted alone when he took four hostages during Shabbat services. A senior law enforcement official sharing police in the UK questioned Akram's two teenage sons, who, according to that official, were in touch with the suspect at some point on Saturday. There's no indication they're being considered suspects. Akram was in the U.S. legally, arriving at JFK Airport on December 29th. Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker says he didn't notice anything suspicious till he heard a click during one of the prayers and turned to see a gun. He spoke to CBS. Wow. It was terrifying. It was overwhelming. Stacy Silverman was watching the live stream on her computer. We heard this man ranting for three hours. A tense 11-hour standoff followed. FBI negotiators establishing contact early. Akram's only request, the release of a federal prisoner once known as Lady Al-Qaeda, who in 2010 was convicted of attempted murder of U.S. military. About seven hours into the standoff, Akram released one hostage. But as time went by, the rabbi said he only became more agitated leaving the temple leader to rely on prior training for an active shooter. I threw a chair at the gunman, and I headed for the door. And all three of us were able to get out without even a shot being fired. The suspect died after the FBI moved in. His family says he suffered from mental illness. Jeffrey Cohen was one of the hostages. At one point, the, the terrorist let us call our families, so I'm calls to my wife or my son and basically told them come in here he claims he has a bomb things don't look good right now i love you and um remember me this attack highlights what rabbi andrew paley calls an ever-present threat for the jewish community nobody wants to have armed security or other layers of security around them that's not the vision of uh, of the world that we want to live in in 2019 one person was killed when a man with a machete attacked people at a hanukkah celebration in new york and in 2018 11 were killed during a shooting at this pittsburgh synagogue you have the embrace and support of the entire world of good decent people who reject this and say no this is not okay so you're not alone morgan have we learned any more about how the suspect died yeah lester we have in fact within the last hour a senior law enforcement official confirming that that suspect was shot and killed by that fbi hostage rescue team and while it's unclear if the man opened fire that same official says the use of force was warranted
Lester. All right, Morgan Chesky, thank you. Let's turn out of the pandemic, even as cases and hospitalizations climb nationally, there are signs now that infections have peaked in parts of the east that were hit hard at the outset of all this. This comes as the government promises to make hundreds of millions of at-home COVID tests available starting this week. Here's Miguel Almaguer. Tonight, with more than 130,000 Americans hospitalized with COVID, there are signs of progress even among setbacks. While cases are still rising in every state, in some regions first hard hit by Omicron, states like New Jersey, Rhode Island, and Connecticut, cases appear to have peaked. In New York, a drop of nearly 47% from earlier this month, the most encouraging sign in weeks, though not widespread enough. We're in no way seeing a plateau or a decline, so the numbers are still going up. As hospital networks like Mass General Brigham cancel thousands of surgeries every week so overwhelmed staff can care for the crush of COVID patients, the Surgeon General says the U.S. may still be weeks away from a national peak. We've definitely seen an increase in our critical care patients. Some hospitals turning back to the past, this one in Virginia using its parking garage as a field hospital. Across California, patients are waiting hours just to be unloaded from an ambulance. As an ambulance is waiting in an ER to transfer a patient, there are 911 calls that are still coming in. There are still emergencies happening. There are still vehicle accidents. There are still fires. And these crews are not available to respond with more breakthrough infections expected, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, isolating at home with minor symptoms. This week, Americans can go online and start to order four free at-home COVID tests per household. But with delivery expected 7 to 12 days later, they may arrive at the end of Omicron surge. My hope is yes, that Omicron is, is the beginning of the end. Um, but I am ready. I'm I'm ready to continue fighting if we have to. Tonight, our nation facing the promise of a better future while still battling a grim reality. Miguel Almaguer, NBC News. The nation's airlines are warning of a catastrophic disruption if the telecom industry goes ahead with plans to turn on new 5G wireless technology this Wednesday that could affect a critical flight instrument on planes. Here's Tom Costello. Just 36 hours before Verizon and AT&T switch on their new faster 5G cell systems, the nation's airlines today issued a stark warning, an urgent request signed by every major U.S. airline and cargo CEO for the government to keep the 5G ground stations turned off if they're within two miles of major airports. The CEOs write immediate intervention is needed to avoid significant operational disruption to air passengers, shippers, supply chain, and delivery of needed medical supplies. 50, 40, 30. The concern, those 5G ground stations could disrupt a plane's radio altimeter, which provides precise altitude readings when pilots land in poor visibility. As 5G goes live Wednesday, the FAA will prohibit pilots from using altimeters during landing at more than 80 airports near 5G sites, including large airport hubs in Dallas, New York, Chicago, and Seattle. Today, the airline CEOs warned the vast majority of the traveling and shipping public will essentially be grounded, facing cancellations, diversions, or delays. The FAA has issued an airworthiness directive 
that would significantly impact our operations. The cell phone industry insists the technology has proven to be safe in Europe. It's already delayed rollout twice and says it'll turn down the power at ground stations near some airports. Look, the wireless carriers are impatient to deploy technology that uh, stands to make a big impact, a positive impact on our economy. Uh, but on the aviation side, we've also got to make sure that it's safe. Tonight, the airlines are warning they may have to ground planes, and mass cancellations could start Wednesday. Lester? I know you'll stay on it, Tom. Thanks very much. In just 60 seconds on this Martin Luther King Jr. Day, King's family and others march in Washington for voting rights. Echoes of the 1960s struggle for voting rights on this Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Members of King's family making those comparisons while pushing for Democrats voting legislation, though it's an effort that so far is not succeeding. With more, here's Blaine Alexander. On this Martin Luther King holiday, his son and namesake marching in Washington, pushing for the very issue his father championed for years, demanding lawmakers deliver on Democrats' voting rights legislation. Democracy stands on the brink of serious trouble. In King's hometown of Atlanta, at Ebenezer Baptist Church, where he once held the pulpit, the issue is taking center stage. We must mobilize everyone we know in this fight to save our democracy. Pass federal voting rights. Ebenezer's pastor and Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock literally using his pulpit to apply pressure to his Senate colleagues. We will be free someday. We will But in Washington, the two bills are all but dead, with every Republican opposed, calling the legislation a partisan attempt to have the federal government take over elections. This is not about a fair election. This is about gaming the system and putting your thumb on the scale for Democrats to try to keep control of the Congress. And two moderate Democrats opposing a change to historic Senate rules that would allow Democrats to pass the bills on their own. Today, President Biden said passing the legislation is the only way to truly honor King's legacy. It's not just enough to praise him. We must commit to his unfinished work to deliver jobs and justice to protect the sacred right to vote. But now the president is under fire for once again failing to convince his own party to pass a key part of his agenda. And some allies are fed up. In a scathing New York Times op-ed, Bishop Reginald Jackson of Georgia writes, the White House slept on voting rights and now our very democracy is at risk. And the Senate is expected to begin debate tomorrow with votes on the rule change and the bills likely later this week, but neither expected to pass. Lester. Blaine Alexander, thank you. And a man who gave us a first-hand perspective on Dr. King and the civil rights movement has died. Photojournalist Steve Shapiro documented the marches, the protests, and the leader of the struggle, including King at Selma, and this photo of King's hotel room shortly after he was killed. Shapiro also produced classic portraits of many celebrities in the 1960s and 70s. Steve Shapiro was 87. Up next, as we continue tonight, we're inside the rescue mission to save the Florida manatees. Now to the race to save the manatees. Kerry Sanders with our broadcast exclusive as four young manatees from SeaWorld get a new home. 
manatees that just arrived at the Columbus, Ohio Zoo and Aquarium today getting acclimated. Flown here because they're dying at an unprecedented rate in Florida. In just 12 months, more than 1,100 dead, most starving to death. It's painful to watch an animal come in in these conditions. They are starving. They're eating their own muscle. SeaWorld Orlando, the world's largest manatee hospital, moving four female calves more than a thousand miles north from Orlando's 60-degree temperatures to Ohio, where it'll drop to eight degrees later this week, all to make room for more rescued manatees. Columbus Zoo and Aquarium was more than happy to help out. It's estimated there are only 6,000 manatees left in Florida. They survive on seagrasses. A single manatee can eat as much as 300 pounds of it a day. But for more than 80 miles along the East Coast, the bottom has become a desert. Like trees in a forest, the seagrasses need sunlight to grow. But pollution from wastewater, leaking septic tanks, and fertilizers from yards and farms have washed into the coastal waters of Florida. Those nutrients cause algae to grow. It's so thick, sunlight can't penetrate to the seabed. And without sunlight, seagrasses do not grow. We're talking being down eight, nine hundred pounds, half to three quarters of your body weight gone. They're skeletons. In a first ever, Florida wildlife biologists have tried to feed the manatees. But so far, the lettuce that they love to eat with gusto when they're in a manatee recovery pool like this has not happened in the wild. At this point, the animals aren't recognizing it as a food source. As we adapt, we are offering the lettuce in different forms. Tonight, racing a clock before even more manatees starve. Kerry Sanders, NBC News, Orlando. A noble effort to save them. We're going to take a break. Then up next, remembering a legendary airman who flew into history. Finally tonight, our tribute to a hero who served in three wars, soaring past barriers and inspiring generations to come. Charles McGee was a fighter pilot with the legendary Tuskegee Airmen, the all-black unit that broke racial barriers in the military, fighting for their country and for their country's respect. He amassed more than 400 career combat missions in World War II and later in Korea and Vietnam. After my first flight, I was hooked. I loved flying. McGee died on Sunday at 102 years old. Vice President Kamala Harris calling him an American hero. Secretary of Defense Lloyd J. Austin III writing, I'm also incredibly grateful for his sacrifice, his legacy, and his character. I spoke with McGee in 2020, soon after he was awarded the rank of Brigadier General by President Trump. General McGee, our nation salutes you. Thank you, sir. Has life changed a lot now that you are general? <laughs> a lot to be thankful for uh, because of that. What are your most vivid memories of being a Tuskegee Airman at war? Although we didn't change segregation, we provided a background that gave our Air Force the opportunity when they air and ground portions separated to bring about uh, equal access and equal opportunity for all. His message to young Americans. And the knowledge to know that they can achieve if they believe in it uh, themselves and uh, don't let others tell them that uh, they can't do something. A true honor to talk to General McGee. 
That's nightly news for this Monday. Thanks for watching. I'm Lester Holt. Please take care of yourself and each other. Good night. power whiteout conditions sending cars skidding nearly all flights from charlotte grounded the storm now pushing north act of terror the fbi identifies the man who held a rabbi and others hostage at a texas synagogue new reporting tonight on how he entered the country the president weighing in this was an act of terror as the rabbi speaks out about what happened just before the SWAT team raid. Pushed to the limits, more hospitals now so short-staffed and overwhelmed with COVID patients, they're suspending elective surgeries. But also some potential good news, cases and hospitalizations starting to drop in the states hit first by the Omicron wave. Game over for Novak Djokovic, the tennis star deported after his final loss in an Australian courtroom. And it would have been her 100th birthday Birthday, how so many are honoring Betty White this weekend by helping animals and adopting pets. This is NBC Nightly News with Kate Snow. Good evening. If you're sitting in the eastern half of the country tonight, you've probably already been hit by this winter storm or you're bracing for it. All total, 100 million Americans are under some kind of winter weather, wind or coastal flood alert. Snow, freezing rain and sleet fell today in parts of the south not used to any of that. Check out this dash cam video from Tennessee. Heavy snow in Virginia and a wintry mix stranding drivers and taking down power lines in the Carolinas. Snow still coming down in the nation's capital and as the system moves north overnight the winds will pick up already there are wide-scale power outages with more likely on the way we're covering the storm and where it's headed let's begin with kathy park in charlotte a dangerous mix of snow sleet and freezing rain crippling the carolinas Heavy snow bearing Greenville, a wintry mess in Charlotte. It's a lot slicker than I thought it would be. And treacherous travel in Raleigh. But ice, you can't see it. And when you do, it's too late. So, you know, there again, it's not worth the risk. Spinouts piling up on the interstate. Our state highway patrol advises staying off the roads in most parts of the state on Sunday and Monday if you can. At Charlotte's airport, nearly all flights grounded. The high-impact storm knocking out power to tens of thousands in the southeast. Officials warning that 750,000 customers in North and South Carolina could see outages extend for days if the icing gets worse. We've moved in more than 11,000 11, resources. They're staged strategically throughout the Carolinas awaiting those impacts to see where those outages occur and where they need to begin responding. Is it essentially going to be nonstop for your crews today? It is nonstop. It's been nonstop, I think, all week. At least four governors declaring states of emergency. Overnight, near whiteout conditions in Arkansas to steady snow in Georgia. Stores hit hard with supply chain issues are struggling to keep up with storm demands. Unfortunately, with the uh, supply chain being like it is, we went to order in and there was uh, nothing there. Extreme weather also striking southwest Florida. A reported EF2 tornado leaving behind a path of destruction, destroying dozens of mobile homes across three communities near Fort Myers. This happened so fast it was just unbelievable. This really came, it came hard and it came fast. And the storm isn't slowing down. Up next, the Northeast. So much going on. Kathy joins us live from Charlotte. The storm almost gone there where you are, but the threat is not.
Kate, that's right here in Charlotte. Temperatures will stay below freezing, so any melting that we see now will refreeze during the overnight hours. Black ice will be a big concern come tomorrow morning. Kate? Kathy, thank you. Let's bring in NBC meteorologist Bill Karens. He's out in New Jersey where the snow is just about to start. Bill, where is it heading next? Kate, this dangerous storm is on the move. We are already watching 78 million people under winter weather alerts. And look at how massive this storm is. 1,300 miles stretching all the way from Miami to Buffalo. The heavy snow tonight and tomorrow is targeting western New York and western Pennsylvania. Someone's going to get two feet of snow out of this. But I'm not worried about the snow for the northeast. High wind warnings are already in effect from Long Island all the way to Boston. We're going to see 70-mile-per-hour wind gusts tomorrow morning. And those high winds are going to push a two to four foot storm surge onshore right at high tide. I expect coastal flooding and some damage to occur. Kate, we've already seen numerous power outages in the south, and those power outages are heading for the northeast tomorrow. All right, Bill, thank you. President Biden today called the hostage situation at a synagogue in Dallas Saturday an act of terror. The FBI today identifying the man who took a rabbi and others hostage for nearly 12 hours before he was killed in a SWAT team raid. Morgan Chesky has new details. Tonight, the FBI combing the scene near Congregation Beth Israel Synagogue, where authorities say a gunman held four people hostage for nearly 12 hours before his death. Today, the president making his stance clear. This was an act of terror. This was an act of terror. Federal investigators ID'd the suspect as 44-year-old British national Malik Faisal Akram, who police say entered the synagogue Saturday morning and took hostages. His voice even heard on a Facebook live stream of the Sabbath service. Police say Akram's primary demand, the release of a federal prisoner some 20 miles away. Afia Siddiqui, at one time known as Lady Al-Qaeda, and the world's most wanted woman, was convicted in 2010 of attempted murder of U.S. soldiers. He was singularly focused on one issue, uh, and it was not specifically related to the Jewish community. The FBI says negotiators made contact with Akram early, and seven hours in, he released one hostage unharmed. Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker, still trapped inside, said the gunman became increasingly belligerent and threatening as time went by. Within an hour, this pivotal moment. Akram's brother alleging the remaining hostages were released by a fire door, not rescued. Police haven't verified these details, but confirming Akram's death minutes later. In a statement, he added, We as a family do not condone any of Akram's actions and would like to sincerely apologize wholeheartedly to all the victims adding his brother was suffering from mental health issues, and there was nothing we could have said to him or done that would have convinced him to surrender. Authorities credit Citron Walker for keeping the situation calm. No surprise to friend and fellow rabbi, Andrew Paley. When you got the word that everyone made it out okay. Yeah, um, it, it's a, like um, a release of um, tears and um, anxiety stress and thankfulness and praise and worry and all of those all at once. Tonight, the rabbi now back with his family, posting in part, I am grateful that we made it out. I am grateful to be alive. Just so upsetting. And Morgan joins us now from Colleyville. What more are we learning about the alleged hostage taker, Morgan? Yeah, Kate, a senior law enforcement official confirms that Akram entered the United States at JFK Airport back on December 29th. And they say there was no irregularity regarding his travel tonight. They're still trying to ascertain his movements from JFK to where he ended up yesterday.
Kate. All right, Morgan, thank you. To the latest COVID surge now and what may be a silver lining to the growing case numbers. This chart shows cases nationally, which continue to grow fast. But look at this. This is what's happening in New York State, hit first by Omicron. The numbers are starting to dip way over on the right there. But as Guad Venegas reports, the challenges to hospitals are still far from over. Tonight, Omicron impacting millions of Americans and hospitals across the country in dire mode, bracing for the demand of more patients. Staffing shortages are a challenge as healthcare workers fight the virus themselves. In California, ambulances are facing long delays and some scheduled surgeries are being postponed. In Oregon, hundreds of procedures are on hold. You know, in a way, it's not an elective surgery because my life is is not my life anymore. Massachusetts General Hospital System will postpone more than 2,000 surgeries each week, bracing for an influx of patients. We've got patients being treated in hallways. We've got patients being treated in chairs in the waiting room. Last week, we had to shut down a part of our emergency department because we just didn't have the nursing staff to staff it. But there's some light at the end of the tunnel. Cities like Chicago, Washington, D.C., and New York seen hospitalizations plateau and some dips in the number of daily cases. Overall, the, the prognosis, the forecast for COVID is much brighter than it had been before, and that is very positive news. And starting this weekend, if you have insurance, you can purchase up to eight at-home COVID tests a month, and your insurance provider will cover most or all of the cost. Check that you're purchasing from an in-network provider. If not, they'll only reimburse up to $12 a test. And save those receipts. You have to file for reimbursement by filling out a form such as this. And this Wednesday, a federal government website goes live. Families can order up to four tests per household, and they'll ship in 7 to 12 days. We have a billion tests that will become available to people that they can order through the website. Yet for many, it will be too little, too late, as the spread of Omicron continues. And Guay, what you just described sounds like a lot of paperwork if you want to get reimbursed by your insurer. Uh, yes, uh, but for now, that's what it is. Uh, the Biden administration is working with insurance companies to try to make these tests free at the time of purchase, but no word yet on the timeline or if this will happen. All right, Guad Venegas, thank you. This week will mark one year since President Biden took office. And for the next few days, NBC News will take a closer look at his record. Tonight, Stephanie Rule on the job market, where there are some clear successes and some growing challenges. Car accident injury compensation can be worth way more than their... We've seen it. We need to hire a lot of people. We've heard it. Everybody knows it's very challenging nowadays to get staff. Yet the president tells us. The Biden economic plan is working. And it's getting America back to work. After his first year in office, what is happening in the labor market? In fact, it's been historic. A record 6.4 million new jobs. Unemployment down from 6.4% to less than 4%. But that doesn't include those out of work who've given up looking for jobs. On the one hand, this is a tremendous recovery. On the other hand, there's still a very long way to go. Additionally, nearly 3 million people are no longer working compared to pre-pandemic levels. About half of them retired, many earlier than planned. Some laid off, unable to find a new job. Others worried about their health. 
Another group exiting the workforce in large numbers? Women, staying home to care for their families, like Naomi Pena. I had to make a hard decision between supporting my family and or getting a paycheck. In August, the mother of four left her job to focus on her kids after months of remote learning. Was that a hard decision for you? Yeah, for sure. It's, it's, a, it's your purpose, right? It's what you wake up in the morning to do for eight hours a day. While some were forced out of the workplace, others saw an opportunity. Danielle Neal left a job teaching second grade to start her own social media company. Did the pandemic change the way you thought you could be an entrepreneur? Definitely. So remote work has changed the landscape completely. So I've always known of your nine to five looks like this. I have to go into the office after the drive and commute. And now learning that you can really reach people across the globe while staying local. All this turnover has employers fighting for workers, offering higher wages, bonuses and better benefits. But it's still not enough. Why is it there are so many help wanted signs everywhere you look, yet many Americans say they can't find work? Where's the disconnect? So there's a disconnect in terms of the jobs that people want and the jobs that are being provided. And a lot of employees who are on the sidelines are saying, we want to work, but we want to work that if we go there for eight or 10 hours a day, we feel like that was a good use of our time or that we were compensated well. With a near record number of open jobs, many workers will now have the upper hand when deciding where and when to work. Stephanie Rule, NBC News. Still ahead tonight, Novak Djokovic defeated in court and deported. How he's now responding. Also, a big derailment in Los Angeles at the exact spot where thieves regularly ransack trains to steal packages. It is the saga that has captivated not just the sports world, but much of the world for the past 10 days. Tennis star Novak Djokovic trying to enter Australia to compete in that country's Open despite not being vaccinated. Today, a judge served the final verdict. Molly Hunter has the latest. Tonight, the world's number one tennis player is on a plane to Dubai after being deported from Australia. Novak Djokovic has lost his appeal. The world number one has been booted out. The federal court was unanimous, adding Novak Djokovic would be responsible for the government's legal fees and may be subject to a three-year ban, dashing his hopes of winning a record-setting 10th Australian Open title anytime soon. In a statement, Djokovic said he was extremely disappointed, adding, I hope that we can all now focus on the game and tournament I love. And that's exactly what many of his fellow players have been saying. I feel... But it has taken away a little bit from the great tennis that's been happening over this summer in Australia. And while there was some vocal support, many Australians who have spent the last two years largely trapped inside the country felt the right decision had been made. There's been too many instances of people being locked out of their own state and because of the COVID restrictions. I think fees Sunday's ruling closes a messy two-week legal saga over the unvaccinated tennis star's medical exemption. And tonight, as the Australian Open gets underway, fans, players, and Australians, too, are ready to watch some tennis. Now, Djokovic says he's going to take some time to rest and recuperate before making any further comments on this. And we don't know when we'll next see him on the court. Kate? All right, Molly, thank you. When we return, how do you keep a school open, not just during this pandemic, but the next one? 
A new twist in what was already a shocking regular occurrence. A Union Pacific train derailed in Los Angeles on Saturday, and it happened in the same area where thieves for months have been ransacking cargo trains to steal UPS and Amazon packages. You can see them discarded all over the tracks there. Authorities don't know yet what caused the accident. To our series now, COVID and the classroom. For many, this school year is proving to be just as stressful as the last, with some districts going remote or canceling classes altogether. But some school systems have managed to navigate this latest surge and are even planning for the next one. Rahema Ellis reports. We have to start thinking of COVID as a constant. It's an unsettling thought. It's allowing us the opportunity to really innovate. But strategic planner Andrew Smith says school districts need to face the harsh reality. We are in probably one of the most disruptive periods of time for public education that America has ever seen. Now is the time to do things differently. Smith's job is to do just that for the roughly 18,000 students in the Rowan Salisbury School District in North Carolina, making plans, a lot of them, for what could happen next. You've got scenario one all the way down to scenario 13 here. Yes. Any questions about that? A mixture of in-person and remote learning, an iPad for every student, and staff focused on emotional support for students, all measures helping to keep the district's school doors open, even amid the current Omicron wave. The superintendent says they're taking a long view of educating in a pandemic. And we've got to figure out how we respond to problems that we don't even know about yet. Under federal relief bills, Congress allocated $190 billion for schools to respond to the pandemic. The Department of Education says much of that money has gone towards school climate systems and hiring mental health professionals. In Salisbury, the district received about $70 million over a three-year period and is using funds for smaller classes, enhanced ventilation systems, more nurses, and Wi-Fi hotspots throughout the community. Smith says he looked to the business sector for ideas. If Disney World was going to bring back customers into their parks, they were going to do it in a way that was likely very safe. It's commonplace now, but back in March of 2020, these safety protocols, like social distancing, didn't exist, and educators were scrambling. We were paralyzed to know what to do next. The guidance was changing constantly, and so we needed a way to move forward and think ahead. You've got more than 25 desks here, but only 10 students will fill this room. That's correct. The district has seen few outbreaks recently. These proactive measures provide stability to students like senior Rachel McCullough. It shows me that this district cares about not only the students, learning or academics, but their safety as well. A district that plans to keep learning about how best to teach. Rahima Ellis, NBC News, Salisbury, North Carolina. So many lessons. When we come back on the eve of Betty White's 100th birthday, how many are honoring her life by saving a life? As the nation continues the conversation about voting rights, Dr. Bernice King is urging Americans to spend the King holiday not just to reflect on her father's legacy, but to use their voice. Small things eventually will lead to other things that become much more um, oppressive 
and discriminatory. This year, the King family is zeroing in on voter discrimination once again. There are efforts uh, to shut down. They have been shut down polls, especially in more rural settings. That's scaling back the access and the opportunity. The more barriers I got to overcome to vote, the likelihood is that I'm not going to participate. The denial of this sacred right is a tragic betrayal of the highest mandates of our democratic tradition. What makes us a democracy is the vote. Uh, for us to have, you know, a voice in how things happen uh, legislatively in our country. And, and so it is important now more than ever that, that we preserve um, and protect uh, that right. But what makes now the time for change? Over the last few years, there has been a, a generation of young people that have been holding our nation accountable. You know, I, I, I have relabeled it the accountability generation. <laughs> In times past, we would have these spurts and moments and, and people would kind of could resign back into their silos. But now people are having to stay on their tippy toes because this accountability generation says, no, we are insistent on creating, you know, the just, humane, equitable and peaceful world. I love that label, the accountability generation. And I, I think that is such an accurate one because even on social media, you can see people calling attention to issues that they care about. I know some people in my circles can be a little overwhelmed almost with how many issues there are, like you mentioned, poverty, police brutality, the crisis in the climate right now. What would you advise them to stay focused? One of the things that's important is strategizing. You know, I think we do a lot of um, mobilizing, but we're not organizing and we're not strategizing because there are so many issues. If you try to come at it by saying, we got to do this, 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 and this, you will get overwhelmed and you'll burn out. If you can't fly, run. If you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, Crawl, but by all means, keep moving. If you try to take on everything, you're not going to get the victories you need. So you got to say, where can we get some some wins? And her call to action? We can't lay back and say, oh, that was then. No, this is now. This is now. Echoing voices from the past. Now we have the ballot in our hands and let us use it well.